This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Obama. And I'm Joe Newton. And today we have an amazing guest for you, Katie Engelhardt. She's a uh, author, journalist, producer, she does it all. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, just for the sake of context, can you give us a little background? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Toronto, and um, since then I've worked as a reporter in a few different places, and um, London, England, across Europe, and in the United States, um, and... As you said, I've worked in a number of different roles, but the last few years, I've really been reporting on healthcare, bioethics, a lot to do with aging and end-of-life care. Um, so that's led me to to write this book, and, and I'm excited to talk about it. Well, has there something in particular that triggered that that interest? I mean, was it within, something in your family, or is it just something that you uh, kept reading about and decided you needed to know more? Um, it was a few different things. Um, I think part of it comes from my kind of Canadian sensibility as someone who grew up in Canada, spent a lot of time in Europe. When I first moved to the United States, you know, prior to that point, I'd reported on all sorts of subjects, including military action and uh, uh, kind of extremism and hate and terrorism. And when I moved to the United States, I, I found a very different environment. But what I found sort of appalled me most, what I saw to be the greatest violence around me was just the um, lack of quality healthcare offered to so many people. And so I became really interested in understanding more about the healthcare system in the United States. And then within that, you know, I just realized there's this incredible dearth of reporting uh, around, I I mean, I, I think anything to do with death and dying, but also with really the over kind of 65, 75-year-old population, um, there are a lot of stories to do with aging and illness that aren't getting a lot of attention. And I think that's for a number of different reasons. Um, One of them being, you know, by definition, there usually aren't 75-year-old, 80-year-olds working in newsrooms, working in non-documentary teams. And so Mm. I think there's that lack of perspective maybe in and in some cases, a lack of interest. So your book, The Inevitable, it brings a lot of discussion, especially in the topic of death and dying and the right to die. Uh, mm-hmm. What was the motivation behind uh, the book? Yeah, I started working on the book when I was living in England. And I think this was 2015. The British government was deciding whether or not to pass a right to die law or, or what we might call a physician-assisted dying law. And I was asked by my supervisors to cover the story. And I found it, you know, I found the debate to be interesting, but it was also very obvious from the beginning that the British government was not going to pass this law, despite the fact that when they polled people in Britain, there was overwhelming support for a law. The law would have allowed people who were fairly close to death, probably within six months of what we, what doctors call a natural death, um, to have their deaths hastened by a doctor. And so the law, the law failed and there was disappointment. Uh, but at the same time, I noticed two things. Number one, these laws continue to be debated and very slowly passed. So even in the last few years, we've seen more American states pass aid in dying laws um, and a few countries change their legislation. But number two, I just realized there was this incredible amount of activity that was going on away from parliament, parliamentary offices or mm. Senate committees or even doctor's offices. Um, there were a lot of people who were very scared. 
Um, particularly, I found people who had watched parents die in ways they found upsetting, confusing, slow, overly medicated, maybe, um, and, and just kind of not um, not what they expected. And yeah, a lot of people just looking for ways out of that. Um, and I really found this longing for options that people felt their doctors weren't open or able to provide to them. So how did the, uh, you were in England and, the, you know, the whole country is talking about this. What was the mood there? Did the majority of the people like the idea of, you know, choice of a, yeah. of a death? Yeah, when it came to the legal debate, it was pretty reflective of how these debates go everywhere, including how they went in Oregon, you know, 25 years ago when um, when the world's first aid and dying law was passed. So proponents of the law tend to talk about things like autonomy and choice. They talk about dignity. Um, I think, I mean, both sides talk about dignity and claim to have a monopoly on it, but they'll talk about people being able to to sort of choreograph a dignified death for themselves. Um, and they'll talk about, you know, the needlessness of suffering, how someone should have a right to end suffering that they don't want to experience. Um, some people are worried about pain. For some people, it's more they're interested in assisted death for kind of philosophical reasons. They have been in control of their, their lives and they want to be in control of their deaths. And on the other side, in England and as in elsewhere, we see people worrying, I think justifiably in a lot of cases, that the law could be abused or that the law could place implicit pressure on certain groups to end their lives early. For instance, a lot of disability rights advocates, um, I mean, a lot support and dying laws, but a lot oppose them as well. And one of the worries is it could create, again, this pressure on people. This one activist I spoke to called it like a better dead, uh, better dead than disabled mindset. It could, you know, um, lead people to think, oh, oh, this would be a good option for you. Um, others worry about, you know, people with bad access to palliative care, or good hospice care, choosing this, not because they really want it, but just because they're suffering without it. Um, so yeah, that was kind of reflective of, of the debate. Now, interestingly, we, we have a lot of data on how the, the law functions in a place like Oregon, mm. which collects a lot of evidence. And, um, I think what we've seen from Oregon is that some of the, some of the concerns, which again, I think are, are reasonable in a lot of cases, some of the concerns haven't played out in the United States, at least. So in the U.S., people who choose assisted death, and, and 20% of Americans right now live in states um, that allow it, uh, most of them are educated, college educated, they have insurance, um, they, are, uh, they are white, they are not the kind of groups we worry about being underrepresented in healthcare. Um, most are, have cancer, most are quite near the ends of their lives, so... We haven't seen, you know, as far as I know, sort of vulnerable people pushed into this option. We really see people seeking it out. Mm. What is your belief? I believe that people should have um, access to physician-assisted death in some ways. Where I write about finding uncertainty is exactly where the the line should be drawn. You know, any law is going to be imperfect because we have legislators really deciding these people are you know deserving of a death in, in this way and these people are not deserving of a death in this way um but i think for me some things are fairly uncontroversial so um at the start of my book i describe a death that i watched it was um, an assisted death of an 89 year old man um he had prostate cancer that was quite advanced um he'd suffered uh, with, with prostate cancer for years. And he had enjoyed his life. He had been kind of okay with his diagnosis. He was probably, doctors told me, um, two weeks or so from, from his death, but he was worried a lot about, um, becoming 
delirious or out of it, losing lucidity. He was worried about end of life pain. Um, and, and really, I think he felt tired and he was just kind of ready. He felt like he, he completed this cycle of understanding and, and his children understood that too. And so he um, ended up getting a physician assisted death. And to me, that was a very, a very clear cut case actually of just someone who, who knew what he wanted and, and was able to get it. And, and it wasn't really, it didn't feel like anything radical to me, actually. It was just, you know, it's this older man who was going to die soon anyway. Um, likely he would have faced a few weeks of being kind of in and out of, in and out of, of lucidity on, on sedative drugs. And, and instead he was able to, he died with his three grown up children in his bed with him. You know, all of them were touching him when he died. Um, so it was actually a, a pretty beautiful death to witness. That's really powerful. And I remember one time I visited um, a hospice patient at the hospital and she was longing um, for physician-assisted suicide. In fact, she was even begging for it. She's like, I even treated my dog better when I put her to sleep. How can't you, why can't you guys do this for me? And her existence was in, in, in really a lot of pain where really such a situation would have really helped. And um, Joe, you had something to say about that? I'm thinking about uh, my dad's death. And much like along the line of your, uh, your witnessing of the, that person's death, my dad wasn't assisted. He did it on his own. Dad did it on his own. Mm. He got sick on Tuesday and died on Friday. Uh, his bowels died. You know, he was 90 years old. There was nothing that was going to be done. Even asked him in the hospital emergency room, Dad, you want anything done? No, I don't want anything done. So, I mean, we didn't have his DNR with us, so we had to do one on the fly. Uh, Watching his death was incredible. Uh, It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And he was ready, and he was willing to make – he didn't – we didn't have to worry about making that decision to – uh, he, mm-hmm. made, he made the decision for us by just saying that this is it, you know, nothing to eat, nothing to drink, just keep me comfortable. And that was my mm-hmm. biggest, you know, and I've been in hospice now for, what, close to 10 years or more. And I've witnessed so many other deaths that people have asked me on times, why can't we treat ourselves as good as we treat our animals? And I'm like, well, you know, there's these things that come into play does this affect you or address any of the things that you've been investigating with our our religious uh, background? Is that can be yeah. sometimes very difficult to overcome when mm-hmm. someone is someone is ready. I mean, uh, yeah. I just wonder if you've run into that at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, first of all, you know you. You know, that's a the, the idea, like, uh, I'd rather die like my dog or we treat yeah. dogs better than humans. I heard that all the time. And sure. it's a really striking statement because keep in mind, the United States spends more per capita on health care than any other country in the world. And what are people asking for? Veterinary care. <laughs> They're asking for a veterinary solution. What a way to death. put it. That's a really, yeah, <laughs> but, that's but, you true. Know, people, people are... People have memories of putting their dogs to sleep or their cats to sleep, um, you know, putting them to death. And and they remember that those as merciful acts. They remember them as acts of mm-hmm. love and mercy, that they are ending suffering. They look back kind of fondly on them in a way. And and so it makes sense to me that they make this connection. Um, there is always religious opposition. The, sure. the main faiths um, oppose these laws. Um, for a number of different reasons. I think if we're talking about a kind of Catholic mentality, there's this idea that a certain amount of suffering is redemptive or useful. And, and you know, I even found that from hospice physicians or, or palliative care physicians who weren't religious, who just somehow felt like almost like someone needed to suffer a certain amount at the end, like it was part of the process of, of working through. I think we can ask the question of, whether we should make someone suffer because we think it's good for them. Um, 
But, uh, but certainly there's religious opposition. And in the United States in particular, that really crosses over with hospice because so many hospice agencies are, um, you know, tied to religious organizations. So actually, for instance, in the case of the man I talked about, um, he was on hospice care. Uh, he received hospice care through VITAS, which is mm-hmm. a Christian organization. He'd actually asked, unbeknownst to his children, he'd actually asked his nurses twice about assisted death because he knew it was legal for people in California. And they had told him that they couldn't talk about it and that uh, because of their religious faith and and they did not pass on the message to anyone else that he'd asked. They didn't tell his children. And um, I think for for a good while, um, uh, the, the man whose death I watched, he just kind of said nothing. I mean, he'd been shut down by the providers who cared for him. Now, later the company said possibly they would have been able to direct him to someone else, but but that hospice refuses to participate in physician-assisted deaths. So um, while he while he did receive one, you know, the nurse who'd been caring, the nurses who'd been caring for him for months weren't able to be by his side. I suspect many of them would have liked to. Um, and this is particularly a problem because I think a lot of people, you know, they send their relatives to a nursing home or a hospital or a, a maybe an in-person hospice facility, and they don't necessarily even know about the religious affiliation of that organization. It's just yeah. the nearby business and it's the biggest one. And, and yeah. then things like this come up. Um, so definitely religion plays a part uh, in this in that way. And, and even in kind of family, sometimes some family disputes about whether it's a good option for people. I had a patient once who was in a Catholic nursing home. And mm-hmm. as we all know, when people are near death, they don't eat anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't eat, they don't drink, they just, you know, they wait until they die. Mm-hmm. This organization uh, force-fed, and I felt mm-hmm. that was abusive. Yeah, a number of institutions will, yeah, they yep. will force-feed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and even be forceful if someone appears to refuse food. But, you know, um, from... I think there's not that that much data on this. There is a new book about what doctors call VSID, voluntary stopping eating and drinking. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, as you pointed out, when someone is really near the end of their life, maybe they have dementia, they might just naturally refuse food. In other situations, we're seeing people who want to speed up their deaths, who have no option but to stop eating and drinking, um, which... I mean, doctors have told me different things about this, but but which can be very difficult, actually, if you're not really, really, really close to the end. It can take a huge amount of discipline. Um, and it was striking to me this idea that a doctor in you know most American states is not allowed to give a patient a, a cocktail of drugs that will help them end their lives at the moment they want, but can help them starve themselves to death over Mm -hmm. the course of several weeks. Mm -hmm. A doctor is legally able to do that. And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of is an important point and touches on some of your questions, which is, I think it's a mistake almost to see assisted dying as this like radical fringe thing that's completely different from anything else we do. I really see it as being on the spectrum of things we already do. So a cancer Mm. patient has absolute right to say to her doctor, um, thank you. And I appreciate that you recommend chemotherapy, but I don't want it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to spend some great months with my children. I know I'm going to die, but that's my choice. And that's just a conversation. Doctor and patient have that conversation. They decide patient walks out, no paperwork's filled out, no government officials are notified, but that patient has made a decision to die sooner maybe than she otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. Uh, likewise, as I said, doctors can help people refuse food. Doctors can, um, help people to withdraw uh, things like feeding tubes, which will end their lives. There's already plenty of things doctors mm-hmm. are doing to hasten death. It's just this one thing we see as being completely different. With that, we'll take a little break and then we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, 
resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sol Ebem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Katie Agohard. Uh, you know, we were talking about how people can make choices. Uh, I had a colleague, a friend of mine, who chose not to eat. He had a significant heart issue that, you know, when you're as quiet as you are in the midst of your dying, you don't put any exertion on your heart. So, therefore, it's not going to stop sooner than you want it to. It took him four weeks. He little he ate ice chips, and that was it. But it still took him four weeks before he died. And, I mean, he was very cognizant, very determined to do this. And I've had patients that I've talked to about this. I said, they keep telling me, I just wish I could die. And I said, I know there's one way you can. And they look at me with that quizzical look in your eye, and I said, stop eating. Plain mm-hmm. and simple. It's, and quite frankly, not eating is not the worst death to have. In fact, it can be very, very pain-free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think what I find interesting is like the the quizzical look that you described, and it makes total sense. There are a lot of, you know, a, a, a huge number. I think it's like the majority of uh, people over sixty five in the United States have never talked to a healthcare provider about death or dying, um, and people don't really know their options often, and doctors don't always tell them. So, you know, the case of physician assisted death is a more extreme one, but. There's a lot of uncertainty among doctors. Like, should I even bring this up with my patients? Should I let them, if I let them know it's an option, will I be pressuring them to do it? Um, if I don't let them know it's an option, am I, you know, completely be, being derelict in my duty because, you know, this is, I know it's an option and they might not. Um, so I think there is a lot of uncertainty and and usually it seems to me families find out about what's possible at the very end when there's already a lot of confusion and grief and and maybe the patient isn't able to make the decision for himself anymore. And I think we end up placing an incredible burden on on family members in this way when we don't educate patients early. And part of that is the, as you noted, the the inability to discuss the necessary decision points that you have to make. I mean, I... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in my family, I I do all the hard questioning, and that's mm. you know I'm over sixty five, so I you know I uh, my wife is a retired hospice nurse, and I'm a hospice chaplain, and you know mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to ask the questions. Uh, you know that's why I was in the emergency room, with my dad, and asking him what he wanted to have done, and nobody mm-hmm. else nobody else was going to ask him. None of the yeah. none of the doctors, not my mom, mm-hmm. and I took it upon myself to ask because I did not want my dad to suffer. Yeah. You know? And, you know, do they think they can do something for him? No. But, okay, beyond that, I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And how do we educate the population, especially our age, my age and older, to stop looking at the, at the doctor as a god with a little G? And, you know, and it's yeah. just, <laughs> you know, how do you – Yeah. How, you know – I know that people do that. The elderly, by that older than me, <laughs> yeah, they do that. Yeah. Well, I think there's all sorts of problems. I mean, a shortage of geriatricians who might be most comfortable at kind of having these conversations. Um, uh, you know, until until very recently, doctors weren't reimbursed for having at all for having end of life conversations with their patients. If you recall the like Sarah Palin death panel um, <laughs> blow up, I mean. That wasn't actually about government-run death panels. It was about whether doctors should be reimbursed for having conversations by Medicare for having conversations with patients about end-of-life care. Hmm. The fact that that was controversial is wild. I mean, these are just conversations. So I think, um, you know, I've I've heard some clinicians want more guidance um, because I think it, you know, it 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 especially older people, very sick people, they have a lot of contact with the healthcare system. It would make sense that the information comes from them. If we look at other life transitions, like pregnancy, you know, we don't expect pregnant women to be in charge of their own education. Like they get prenatal care, they get 
education. Mm-hmm. There's a public mm-hmm. health reason for that. There's a humanitarian reason for that. Um, um, we educate people. Uh, but I think, you know, there are going to be barriers and they're set up in part by the law. So, you know, one of the chapters of my book, it follows a woman um, in Oregon who I got to know in the last months of her life. She had kind of a mild to moderate dementia. I mean, it was progressing. She felt it progressing uh, uh, in her own mind. And she, her husband had died in the last few years. She didn't have children. She didn't have very, very close family members. And she was terrified of ending up in a nursing home without, and, and kind of being cared by, stra- cared for by strangers without without having any awareness of what was going on or being able to advocate for herself. And she ended up taking her own life. And she took her own life after meticulously planning it for months, um, going on the internet, getting help from strangers, ordering certain devices and tools to her home. Um, She hoarded medication from her doctors so that she would be able to you know, kind of like skimming pills off over the course of a a long period of time so that she could go for a while without seeing her doctor because she was worried her doctor would um, identify her as like at risk and and get her admitted into a nursing home and her plan would be thwarted. And And so basically the system and the law required that she keep quiet. I mean, even from her good friends, she wanted to keep quiet because she was worried that they might face legal issues sure. after her death. Um, and, you know, I, I talked with her and kind of visited her and was um, there with her along those months of her planning. But, uh, and, and in a way her story was, you know, really unique. She was a unique person who, who really, um, you know, put a lot of effort and thought into the kind of death she wanted. But, it also wasn't unique in the sense that I interviewed a lot of people who fear dementia more than death, mm-hmm. um, more than anything else, who desperately want to avoid it. Um, a lot of people say things to me like, um, oh, well, you know, I've promised my dad if he ever gets dementia, I'm going to, you know, help him out. Um, I don't think those people are, are serious in general. I don't think they end up helping out in that way with diagnosis, but I met a lot of people who desperately want to avoid dementia and want an option and the law doesn't give them one. And some of them are taking matters into their own hands. Like this woman, like the stories I read of men being arrested for smothering their wives um, who, um, you know, in the the later testimony of men asked, asked for this death. Um, And I think that's a really tragic state. Some countries, actually do allow physician-assisted death for dementia. Others don't. But I think, again, I see this like yearning for some sort of solution that right now doctors can't offer or don't offer. So, uh, Katie, uh, it's obvious you have a very strong heart. uh, But when you follow a woman like what you wrote in your book, how does that affect you? Do you suffer from some kind of moral injury or... How do you deal with it? I think my first concern is always sort of more professional. I'm I'm concerned mostly at the beginning about um, how me, my presence in someone's life might influence them. So, you know, what I don't want, what I didn't want is, for instance, someone to end their lives because I was expecting them to, because a journalist was following them and um, and, yeah. and to give me a good ending to the chapter in my book. And so that is something I would be very explicit about. I would say I'm interested in your thought process. I'm interested in this journey, regardless of what you decide to do. I have no stake in, or even interest in how this story ends. Um, so that was one thing. And you know, I would remind people that they didn't need to, they didn't, you know, owe me anything. They could stop talking to me if they wanted to. And I had that happen. I had conversations where I'd, I'd be kind of getting to know someone and then all of a sudden they stop answering my phone calls and it's pretty clear they've had a change of heart. And so I move on. Um, but sure, it's, it's it's very difficult. And in this case, it was difficult to see someone um, 
suffer so much alone. I mean, there was really no one she could talk to because of her fear of the law or, or no one she felt she could talk to. Some people do bring in family members. And, um, and that was very hard to witness. And of course, with dementia, you're also dealing with questions of a, you know, you're dealing with a person who's losing capacity. So all, you know, throughout, I'm wondering, is she thinking clearly? Is she thinking, uh-huh. is this really what she wants? To what extent is the illness impacting this choice? Or is this really her authentic wish that preceded the illness? You know, on the moral front, um, I mean, a few things. It's it's challenging because I think a lot of people group, it would group this woman's, you know, classify this woman's death as a suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, most, most suicides to be clear are what we call despair suicides. They're born of mental illness. They're impulsive. They, you know, we, we know there's good data that, um, if we can stop someone who's in an impulsive state from ending their lives for 24 hours, you know, we have a good chance of keeping them alive. So those are, those are different for me. Yeah. For me, this felt like a fundamentally different kind of impulse that was well-considered. It was planned, but you know, that was my judgment. It wasn't, there's no hard and fast rule on what's a what's a suicide suicide and what's this other kind of right, suicide. Right. To me, it felt different. Um, and she didn't want to be saved. You know, um, this was not a cry for help. This was not, yeah, um, that's a whole you know a way approach. to get a te- a way to get attention. She didn't want to be saved by me. But we did have, you know, I think like as a human, my impulse, if this were a family member would be to problem solve, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what, what solutions are there that would make you okay. And, and eventually I did sort of put some of those to her. So I said, at one point we had a, a, a very reflective conversation. I said to her, well, what if you had family members alive who you were really close to, who agreed to care for you and they were going to care for you for the rest of your life. And she just kind of looked at me and said, but I don't. Yeah. yeah. But I don't. Yeah. Like, what's the solution? And what am I going to tell her? I've done a lot of reporting on nursing homes. I know <laughs> what they look like. I know, I know, you know, I, I know that it, 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 w- it would be likely that she ends up in a bed alone, sort of like abandoned to herself for hours and hours a day that she likely wouldn't be able to advocate for herself. I could offer no solution to that. Likewise, she had a lot of financial concerns. Sure. Would she lose her, would she lose her house? Would she um, have to be in kind of like a a facility she didn't like that, that didn't have a proper memory care unit because she couldn't pay privately. I had no solution to that either. Um, It was heartbreaking to see a death that was influenced by, you know, financial considerations. That's a really ugly thing. But I didn't have a solution for it. And it's true of it's true of a lot of people, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Money in, in one way or another influences the way a lot of people die. Yeah. Um, so that was um it was a challenge, but ultimately, no, I didn't think it was my job in this case to intervene. So you dealt with it well, and it looks like you know, you're a professional. You 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 know how to guard your heart and to go around this situation. For us, when we talk about De- death and dying, we talk in the context of hospice. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, you have a broader concept. I mean, you spoke to some people who call this as rational suicide. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and w- is that part of what you just explained? Other circumstances beyond health? Yeah, I think it's, it's, there's this phrase rational suicide that some advocates use, and that's to kind of separate it from other kinds of suicide. Um, uh, and, and like a a kind of life ending that is allegedly more considered more based on cost benefit analysis. Again, it's really fuzzy. I don't think we always know people's motivations, but, um, but yes, certainly people, people who choose physician assisted death where it's legal and people who end their lives the way that this woman did. I mean, they often don't use the word suicide. They don't see it like that. This woman used the term exit. She was exiting. Okay. Uh, question. I've got a question for mm-hmm. you here because I read something in somewhere about you. You're talking about the internet and how, you know, what, what, could, what can I find out on the internet about, you know, not necessarily doctors, but yeah. just 
just a whole, I mean, it, it sounds like yeah. to me it should be on the dark web and nobody should get it until yeah. the crazy people. Yeah. But no, I, I'm just yeah. really amazed because I've not really heard anybody anywhere talk yeah. about that they could get on the internet and say, okay, this is what I need to help me. This is what I need to go. Uh, yeah. Is that, is that out there? Yeah. I mean, everything is out there. And, and anyone I'd spoken to, I mean, I, I had some... I'm sure some bias in the sample I was looking at, but anyone I, I met had already figured out everything they need to know. Wow. Um, wow. from the internet. Well, first of all, um, there are there are old school hard copy publications too. <laughs> so in in like the 90s, this book called Final Exit was published by a man named Derek Humphrey. It became a New York Times bestseller. It is a straight up suicide manual. I mean, it's like chapter three cyanide kind of thing. Wow. It is not like a wow. like an elegant book yeah. um, in that sense. And it was a it was a bestseller and he continues to sell several copies a day. Um uh strangely it was um there was a reference to the book in the movie Nomadland. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, I watched the movie. I didn't really recognize that. No, there I was to a watch reference to that book, um, which I, I think has increased awareness of the book again. But yes, within a few months of of starting this book project, I met a couple of women and men in their 80s. Um, I was in England at this time who had figured out how to set up encrypted email addresses and had procured lethal drugs from kind of dealers in Mexico or China. Mm -hmm. And they had received the information from one of several sort of internet-based right-to-die groups. There are a couple of big ones, um, a couple which sell manuals. Um, there, are, there are a few doctors, one of whom I profile the book, who teach in-person seminars on, on life ending. Um, and so these information is out there, which I think is interesting because a lot of people, what I told them about this book, were very anxious on my behalf and and kind of morally anxious too. Like, am I um, am I going to just be educating people about how to end their lives? And then in a way, I'm kind of responsible for their deaths because they otherwise wouldn't have known this information. And there was a lot of anxiety about how much detail I should put in the book. Like, should I name drugs? Should I describe devices that people use. And I think those concerns were valid pre-internet, but they don't really make sense now because the information is just out there and there are, there are accessible ways to die. And people have been figuring this out for a long time. So they don't always, you know, use dark, the dark web to liaise with dealers. I met a woman who, for instance, had, you know, she had multiple sclerosis. She was fine at the moment. She was like, she had a wheelchair, but she was moving around. She like, lived very full life. She was comfortable with her level of disability at the time, but was worried about the future. And she'd been offered at some point, um, I think it was an antidepressant by her doctor who said that, you know, depression can accompany multiple sclerosis. And she declined it because she didn't feel that she needed it. Later, she looked at the side effects and learned that you could overdose, like have a heart attack by taking too much at once. So she went back to her doctor and said, actually, I would like to try that antidepressant. And it was all just sitting in a, you know, on her bedside table collecting dozens and, and hundreds of those pills. And and we know that people do that on their own. I've heard yeah, stories yeah. of, or they, or they try. I've heard stories of, you know, people in hospice care, no one's around. They swallow all their morphine. They wake up three days later, everyone's freaked out. Everyone's upset. Now their medications are locked in a box and, and yep. someone's going to have to supervise them taking it. Um, cause it didn't work. Uh, so, um, so again, I think you know people have been figuring out solutions for a while, but there is more on the internet than there used to be. There is. I like the words you wrote here. Let me read. You said the people I met were suddenly motivated to die because they were sick, but also because of mental anguish, loneliness, love, shame, long ago traumas, or yearning for the approval of Facebook followers. Some were driven by money or lack of it. The people I met were not, in other words, pure characters. So do you feel like sometimes we have these characters in our mind for people that desire this? Yeah, I think I think so. We kind of expect 
people to be pure in their motivation. And it's not how anyone is. And, 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 and that's why I find so much reporting on the right to die specifically, but also end of life care to be really um, shallow and kind of dishonest. The stories in the newspapers are always these like angelic little old ladies <laughs> or these, you know, mm-hmm. uh, withered military vets. And they kind of say their last words and they know what they want. And like, by golly, they're going to get it. And then they die these peaceful deaths. And that, that's just not how any decision is made in any life. There are family influences. There are conflicting emotions. There are money concerns. There are past traumas or past wrongs that influence a decision. There are people who are motivated by um, things we might be uncomfortable with. I, I, you know, interacted with a woman who, like, she wanted an assisted death, but she was probably going to do it sooner than she otherwise would have because she wanted to save money for her daughter who was kind of had had young children and could benefit from the money. So she was making a very, in her mind, very rational choice to die a few months earlier, to give up a few months of life that she would have liked. You know, those are, it's an uncomfortable thing to, to hear and to describe, but, but no, I found that these stories were usually more complicated. Um, you know, and it makes sense. I, I was lucky enough to be able to go home with people to be in their homes in some cases to meet their, loved ones and their friends and their healthcare workers, their caregivers. It wasn't just a story I was overhearing in a doctor's office, which by definition would be pretty limited. So what would you say is the main reason that people think, I mean, what makes them want to, to, Mm -hmm. to die? I mean, I think about all of my patients and I know of, None of them who say that I'm afraid to die. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all afraid of what's going to lead up to their death, yeah. I think. Yeah. And whether that be pain, I think a real big focus is, like you said, lack of dignity mm-hmm. uh, to lose control. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if any of those, is there one, you know, of one yeah. that kind of stands out more than all the others? Yeah. That would... Yeah. Well, I can bring us to kind of the data which I'll describe in a sec as being a bit complicated. Um, but from states like Oregon, uh, Vermont, or, or wherever there's been data, there's um, uh, people who usually cite autonomy or dignity. Mm. I think dignity is a, a pretty fuzzy concept. People don't usually know what they mean by dignity. Sometimes they just mean autonomy. Um, often I found people... They, they wouldn't be able to tell me exactly what what a dignified death looks like, but they had very clear ideas about what an undignified death would look like. Right. Yes, um, right. And those all weren't always, you know, philosophical ideas. They were like, I don't want to have help in the bathroom. I would rather be dead than that. That was a very common one I heard. Wow. Um, okay. Help with toileting and help with bathing were worse than death for a lot of the people that I met, um, which I think, you know, maybe could you know, lead us to reflect on, on why, why, why we make people feel so ashamed of needing that kind of physical assistance. But, um, and, and then less common reasons are, you know, fear of losing the ability to do joyful activities, fear of pain. Um, so that's what the data from Oregon shows us. The data is not perfect because, um, we don't actually have require in the United States that patients fill out surveys explaining why they want this. <laughs> yeah. What we have is doctors fill out surveys that apparently reflect why their patients have chosen to do this. So there is, um, you know, we're relying on doctors as reporters and mm-hmm. maybe those doctors have sat with their patients and said, so is this about dignity? Is this about autonomy? Is this about pain? My suspicion, but this is not based on anything is that a doctor might be less likely to believe that his patient fears pain because the doctor might think he's perfectly capable of, of as many palliative care doctors tell me they're perfectly capable of controlling end of life pain. Um, I think that's probably up for debate, but uh, um, yes. and, and probably not true, 
but um, but yeah, that's what we we do see that these issues of control um, are are really huge and, and wanting to avoid certain kinds of care. I think autonomy has to be the biggest. I mean, if I were to do it, it would be that. And with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soleil and we continue our conversation with Katie. I just told her during the break that she's so smart that she's making us <laughs> sound smart here too. Uh, you, 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 you shared a story about going in one of your researches and a grandmother locked herself in a basement when you arrived to ask questions about her grandson. Uh, what was that about? So one of the stories I tell is about a young man who lives in Canada. He was in his mid-20s. His name was Adam Meyer Clayton. And he was suffering from a range of psychiatric disorders. Um, So he had obsessive compulsive disorder, for instance. Um, What he was feeling in his body was a huge amount of chronic pain, which doctors believed had again, like a psychosomatic origin. Um, uh, But he felt burning sensations. He felt headaches. He was sort of bedridden. And this was, you know, I met Adam in the context of Canada debating and eventually passing a law legalizing physician-assisted death. And what Adam was arguing was that it was wrong of the law to allow access for people who were physically ill, but not mentally ill. And he felt that someone um, in his position should have equal access to a law, the, the law, because he was suffering equally. He was suffering just as much as in, in his belief, if not more than a, a cancer patient would. Um, and Adam, you know, he, he did try. Uh, he, he did try some treatments. He did have a psychiatrist. He did have a therapist. Um, he tried diet and exercise. Uh, he kind of came forward as a, as a public campaigner, but eventually he did take his life with drugs that he got um, from, I guess, friendly strangers on the internet who he'd connected mm. to. And um, yeah, as kind of my last research trip for that book. I, I drove to um, Waterloo, Ontario, near Detroit, and uh, spent some time with his father and his uh, grandmother, as 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 I wrote, um, she kind of didn't want to hear me be there, and so she escaped to the basement. I didn't end up seeing her. What was interesting is that his father had actually supported him. His father knew what he was going to do, mm. and and actually everyone knew what Adam was going to do. He told his therapist. He told his Facebook friends. He wrote it on his Facebook wall. He told his dad. He told his mom. He told newspapers, he told anyone who would listen to what he was mm-hmm. going to do. And, you know, people kind of tried to intervene a few times. Police showed up at his house and it was like, go away. <laughs> you know, you can't do anything. You know, I'm, I'm of my, of sound mind, you know, of sound yeah. mind. And, yeah. and so he did take his life and his father was supportive of it. Interestingly, Canada this year expanded the law, its law to include people with who are mm-hmm. suffering from mental illness, but not physical illness. That's very controversial. I'm not sure that someone like Adam actually would have qualified under the law, even if it had been legal. But um, but uh, but I think he had that legacy in, this, in, in Canada and, and the law has been changed. But that's a very thorny issue. Yeah. <laughs> There's only a few places in the world that, that allow this, but there are a few, Belgium, the Netherlands, for instance, now Canada. Wow. So Joe, uh, you know, Adam was young, but... Uh, the role of age in this kind of scenario. Joe, you had a story. Yeah, I have, a, I have this woman that I uh, I visit weekly. She's 107 years old, just had her birthday. Uh, she keeps, you know, why am I still here? She keeps asking me. And then whenever I walk in the room, she goes and just complains that she cannot do what she used to do. And I try to explain to her rationally about, you know, how age has deteriorated her. 
She didn't want to hear that, or at least she's not going to acknowledge it. How mm-hmm. do we do? I mean, I, I mean, there's this poor woman is, in my mind, uh, suffering in a way because she mm-hmm. uh, she's tired of this life, and she just it, there's nothing going on with her, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, that's very hard, and it's hard because we like we euphemistically talk about people dying of old age. That's right. Um, Although, you know, on death certificates, or, you know, we're not allowed to write old age. There has to be a cause. And, <laughs> and really, a, a lot of the people who die of old age die kind of like sedated on pain medications. And maybe there's like some kidney failure and there's dehydration. I mean, we don't actually, we're not actually that honest about how people die. But certainly this is, this is a huge conversation um, among people I interviewed for the book because, you know, in the states and countries, in most countries where, where aid in dying is legal physician assisted death, um, you know, someone couldn't qualify because of old age. That's right. <laughs> you, they need to have, they need to have a cancer. I, I had one woman tell me I long for cancer. I've longed for cancer. Her brother had died of lung cancer and she was envious of him because instead of having this one thing that could get her some help or that had an end time to it, she had this constellation of symptoms that together in her view, made life unbearable. So everything from hearing loss to incontinence to um, mm-hmm. issues with mobility, issues with sight, vision. Um, and there are definitely campaign groups who argue that laws should be open to people who are above a certain age. I mean, someone would have to pick a cutoff um, and who who want to die just because of th- this kind of cumulative effect of aging. Um and, you know, the novelist Martin Amos, he got in a lot of trouble years ago. He gave this interview, I think, to the Guardian newspaper. And he said something like, you know, there should be suicide booths on the corner where old people can go and just end their lives. And they should be given like a medal for doing it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of outrage <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, he, he didn't phrase it in a particularly sensitive way. But but actually, a lot of the people I, I spoke to thought he was kind of on to something. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think it's very hard for people who are, who are left uncertain of, of when it will all end. I mean, of course there's part of me that thinks, well, gosh, shouldn't we just have some sort of like music program or arts program to entertain this woman? And shouldn't people be working harder to make her find value in life? But, Mm. um, a, we don't in a lot of cases, like people aren't stimulated at the ends of their lives. They're left for, you know, 20 hours a day or, or more in a bed on their own and be, you know, I always, I always just kind of ask myself, like, who am I to, who am I to tell someone to try harder? Who am I, who would I be to, to tell someone like, no, there's still meaning to be found. I don't know what it's like to be 107 and to have everyone I've ever loved uh, die and be gone. Um, but I do know, you know, for a lot of people, they're suffering and and they are facing the only thing they have to look forward to is is years in a long term care facility, the kind of place they've probably spent their lives trying to avoid. You talk about this slogan that you had all the time. I'd rather die like a dog. Mm-hmm. What did that mean? I think people they just want they a lot of people want the an option to die. What's interesting is that in some states where aid and dying is legal, we have um, a, a fairly substantial percentage of patients who go through the process. They find a doctor who's willing to do this. Two doctors sign off. They're written a prescription and they don't end up filling it. Um, yeah. It is enough for them to have the prescription or to be told by a physician, I'll write the prescription when you want it. The prescription itself is a, a kind of palliative medicine. Um and I think people are sort of saying that they don't, when they say, I, you know, I want to die like my dog did, they don't necessarily mean right now I want to be dead. They mean something a little less clear. They mean when they get to the point when they're suffering, either they can indicate that they want to end or someone around them can, you know, take pity or take mercy. Those are words they use, pity and mercy, um, and, and kind of end their lives, um, it sounds like that's a, not that's not legal anywhere where you know someone could be out of it and someone else could make the decision. But I think that's what people want. It sounds like cases. it's the 
it's going back to the control issue, the autonomy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I never thought that someone would say that I've made up my mind. I went through all of the steps to get to the point that this is it. But I could see it happen where all of a sudden, ooh, it's real. And I, yeah, or, not, I'm not really sure at that point. Yeah. Or even something a little bit short of that. I, I talked to this hospice doctor in California and he was talking about a patient who, again, like he'd kind of gone through this process with her and he'd said like, fine, I can be your doctor and I can offer you a physician assisted death. And she was approved and she, um, and finished the process. And he said sort of every day she would ask him like, doctor is today the day, like, should I do it today? And he would mm. say, he would say to her, is today a good enough day? Kind of like, is today a good enough day that you want to live this day? And she'd say, like, today's okay, you know? And so the day would pass and they'd have the conversation the next day. And every day ended up being okay. Maybe she'd anticipated more pain or more mental anguish, but it didn't come. And every day was fine. And then, you know, one day she died and that was it. And she didn't need the medication. But if the day had not been okay, maybe she would have acted otherwise. See, that's that's the, the, the I think the real barrier that I mean that the opponents of uh, doctor assisted death is throwing out there because we don't know. You know, they'll say, "Oh, we," you know, nobody knows for sure they really want to do it. Yeah, and, and therefore, then you just uh, why should we give them the why should we give them the opportunity if that is going yeah. to be the case? And I mean, it's. There's a lot of mindset to it, and that's where yeah. that's where it's challenging. Yeah. But usually we err in healthcare in the United States, we err on the side of patient autonomy. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to this hypothetical woman I brought up at the beginning who decides not to proceed with cancer treatment, we don't make her undergo some sort of psychological assessment. Absolutely we don't not. No. grill her to make sure, like, are you really sure? Do you really know what it means to die of cancer? We err on the side of, this woman seems to know what she wants. She is of sound mind. And so we're, you know, it's, it's imperfect. We're, but, but our system doesn't scrutinize, you know, she's um, considered motivations. Bra- she's considered yeah. brave and one who goes to the doctor and asks for this are cowards because they're yeah. doing it this way. And that's a, you know, that's a horrible thought to think that, oh, this one wants to, wants to end their life. Um, yeah. I mean, because suicide has had such, because of mental illness has been so, you know, it's been ugly. Yeah. And I think it gets back a little bit to like some religious thinking that's permeated oh, sure. even secular institutions. We have this sense that, yeah, it's brave to suffer in the face of, it is dignified to suffer in the face mm-hmm. of pain. It is not dignified to run from pain, to choose to escape pain or to, you know, end yeah. your life before the pain even starts. Um, so I think, yeah, it's not just religious institutions that carry that baggage. I think for me, though, I think as we come to the conclusion, this conversation really has to, the, the discussion on what does mercy look like? And um, I guess that is something that we have to think about as we refine on what it means to die with dignity. Have you seen, have you seen mercy? With someone who has decided to end their, have doctor-assisted live, uh, death. I'm sorry. Yeah. I've seen doctors who find ways to act that are merciful, that they originally weren't open to. So I met, I mean, especially in the United States context, but also in other countries. I mean, a lot of opposition from physician-assisted death has historically come from inside palliative and hospice care, from physicians who think, A, they're very good at controlling pain, so why would a patient need to do this? Or B, they see themselves as like stewards of death, and they don't like this idea of short-circuiting it. But I, I did meet a lot of doctors who really bravely, I think, pushed themselves to reconsider because they wanted to provide for their patients. So they started offering physician-assisted deaths when they originally felt uncomfortable and unsure about whether they were right. And they ended up finding them to be, as you said, merciful. Um, So I think I saw a lot of transformations within the medical profession, which are really interesting to see. 
Wow, thank you, Katie. You've given us really a home in your heart and the time has just flown by so quick. If you haven't read Katie's book, please get it, The Inevitable. Uh, such a fantastic book and it brings a lot to this discussion. What are your final thoughts? Um, yes, please. I mean, please buy the book and, you know, I have people reach out to me on social media or email, so feel free to do that. But, you know, I'm hoping that this becomes something we can all talk about just with a lot more honesty and a lot more detail. I think, um, a lot of reporting and a lot of writing about death and dying is kind of clouded in euphemism. And I've just really tried to be as, as blunt and, and honest as I could be. Good for you. Where can our listeners find you? Um, they can find me on Twitter. I'm Katie Engelhart. Um, I have a website with access to some talks and, and to links to the book and, and my email address. So they can find me there too. Thank you very much, Katie. Thank you, ma'am. That was Katie Engelhart, the author of The Inevitable. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 